Today's podcast interview is with Dr. Paul Anderson, who's a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine and naturopathic and integrative oncology. I've known Paul for a long time. He's been one of the forefront leaders and educators to healthcare practitioners as it relates to all things integrative oncology, primarily and particularly intravenous vitamin C. He has been the source of my education for intravenous vitamin C. Paul founded the Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, which is a clinic that focuses on cancer and chronic diseases. So as we spoke about in the interview today, really Paul, Paul for a long time has seen chronically ill patients who are sort of disregarded by their medical doctors or stage four cancers, which is extraordinary. So throughout this podcast interview, he talks quite a bit about IV vitamin C, what it is exactly, how is it different than oral vitamin C, and how it can potentially benefit patients with prostate cancer, including low-risk patients, intermediate risk, and high risk. Paul goes deeply into the biology of how IV vitamin C works around cancer cells and how it tends to leave normal cells, healthy cells alone. So I'm super excited for this interview. I hope you like it. I trust that you will. And make sure to follow Paul Anderson at consultdra.com. So consultdra.com, full of resources. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your urological function and to live better with age. Today, we have the great pleasure of introducing a top-notch integrative oncology naturopathic doctor in the field, uh, Dr. Paul Anderson. Paul, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So, you and OG in the world of <laughs> naturopathic. You know, I was at a conference not that long ago and somebody pointed out to me that I'm already an old timer naturopath. And I said, excuse me? So I, I don't know what the, what's the right number in terms of years, <laughs> but I've been an ND now for 20 years. And, and they said, well, you, yeah, you're an old timer now. And, and, and so you need to be the, you know, our, our mentors and, you know, the younger group. So you've been around for a long time and you've done oncology for a long time. Take us back as much as you can, you know, how long you've been practicing and how did you get into naturopathic and integrative oncology? What was that about? Yeah, it's, and I, I think that, you know, probably in our profession, there there is this tipping point at about two decades because partly Prior to that time, there were so few of us around, yeah. you know, the, the, just the numbers work out that way. So I always mark time by uh, when did I start teaching at, uh, at the, what used to be called NCNM, now NUNM. Uh, and I, I believe I started teaching there in 1994. And that's the Naturopathic Medical School in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh been around long enough, I guess. What was that year, Paul? When did you start teaching there? Started teaching in 1994. Yeah. Um, so, so that 
that goes back a ways. Um, but you know what? Really, uh, the shortest version of the story I can possibly tell is I originally was planning to do a, a very broad family practice, uh, which I did. And, you know, just kind of the, not really a country doctor because I was in a city, but, you know, kind of that idea, you know, uh, babies to elderly. And so, you know, how plans go, you make them and then everything changes around you. One of the things that I was doing back then, which wasn't technically even legal at the time, but this is a long time ago, so no one can get me, is uh, because I... Uh, I, I have this interesting background in my medical training where I did a lot of allopathic training uh, alongside my naturopathic training. And part of that was just connections and the ability to get into hospitals and things. And uh, part was because my father was a physician and we knew a lot of folks, but it really helped. So one of the things I started doing when I got into practice was IV therapy. And that was mostly, you know, I was, I was getting people with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and these other things. And I just started thinking, you know, I mean, IV therapy to me was nothing. It was, you know, something we did on the other side of medicine all the time. And I thought, you know, this idea of putting nutrients into people who are sick might be a good thing. Well, right. that was the gateway that I didn't know was going to open to people's who didn't have chronic fatigue telling their friends who had cancer, Hey, there's this guy that does, you know, no one else in town does this. You should maybe go talk to him. So I started to get a lot of cancer patients just suddenly, which really wasn't a part of my practice at all. And, you know, if you go back to those, those days in the, uh, especially, you know, that sort of earlier time in the late eighties to the middle, late nineties, there really wasn't a lot of organized naturopathic oncology, et cetera. And, and really the, the idea of integrative oncology didn't even really exist. In fact, it was all, all of what we do now was pretty marginalized and pretty shunned. You know, I find it interesting, Paul. By the way, you were the John, you were trying to be the John Bastier of the, of the nineties. Uh, you, you just want right? John Bastier being the, uh, uh, really, our naturopathic forefather, one of the first naturopaths in, uh, in 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 a country, and so the school in Seattle is named after for John Bastier, Doctor John Bastier. I was talking to somebody recently and said, oh, "Naturopathic medicine? You didn't know much about it." It says, "You know what is that about?" I said, "Well, if you look at the history, naturopathic medicine was all about hydrotherapy, and now we know that cold water plunges before Wim Hof. You know, Wim Hof made it popular, but you know." Uh, submerging yourself in cold water is a good thing. And we used to do, you know, contrast and things like that. So it was, you know, quackery back then. Now there's science to support that. Fasting. <laughs> fasting. We were talking about fasting <laughs> 50, you know, 60, you know, even a hundred years or even before that, when you look at the history of naturopathic medicine, heresy. I mean, that was just like, what are you guys doing? Quack now, right? Plenty of science. Uh, sun therapy, right? So we know, you know, the importance of uh, sun exposure and uh, even beyond uh, the benefits of vitamin D, nutrition, physical movement, all these things that if you put a, you know, when you look at PubMed, you see, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of research articles. So it's amazing how we've evolved. And now, you know, all the things that uh, we used to do 
that were, you know, these natural guys that do over there. Now it's, 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 you know, it's a scientific backbone to it. So, yeah. Speaking of plenty of science, I do want to talk about our sponsor for today, which is the Exo Prostate Test, Exo DX Test. Amazing test. It's a urine test. For most people, most men do not want a biopsy, right? So what are the tools that is not dependent on the PSA test to prevent from getting a biopsy or at least an unnecessary biopsy? Such a test is the ExoDX prostate test, which is an assessment tool that you can get at home or you can ask your urologist for it in the office where you pee in a cup and it does not require a prostate massage or a digital rectal exam. It's a urine test, non-PSA dependent, that gives you a number and your practitioner and the two of you can make a decision based on that number if you need a prostate biopsy or not. So that's the ExoDX test, our sponsor for today and a test that I use almost every day of my clinical life. Yeah. So you were doing IVs of a variety of conditions and then somehow you segued into particular... Was there ever a time that you... I mean... In our field, you you're sort of known, and we don't want to pigeonhole you. I don't want to pigeonhole you, but it's, you know, integrative oncology. That's Paul Anderson. I mean, you know, there's very few people that really know their stuff in that in that world. Were you ever just doing oncology, or was there um, were you doing mostly oncology and then a little bit of everything else? Yeah. So you know, after that sort of early big left turn in the practice where cancer patients started to come, obviously the learning curve was real steep. Um, and so within maybe a year, and it didn't take very long, my practice went from this very broad family practice doing all this, you know, general medicine, et cetera, to really two groups of people. And that was the very sick, chronically ill, and then mostly advanced stage cancer back in those days. And because of, uh, I, I think partly because I wanted to serve both groups, but also, you know, I like a little variety and the tools are very similar that we wind up using in the advanced chronically ill and the cancer patients. Um, I always maintained about a 50, 50, sometimes it was 70, 30, sometimes 60, 40, but, but it was always about half and half. And so in the last, as long as I can remember, uh, but certainly in the last 15 or 20 years, I don't remember a, you know, normal, easy patient, you know, that I, that I had, they all, they were all usually referrals from other clinics, et cetera. So, um, but that being said, the, you know, I was seeing a lot of patients all of those years. So probably the numbers of oncology patients would equal most full oncology practices. How did you, man, I mean, Look, I, you know, my practice, so as you know, I do a lot of benign urology, so, you know, uh, BPH, urinary problems. And that's like nothing in comparison to the kinds of cases that you, you know, chronic cases of where typically they would go to you where they couldn't find solutions anywhere else. That, you know, that's kind of, how did you manage to, and I can't believe you, you know, you, you didn't bat a thousand, right? Um, I, I have to believe that, you know, you tried your best, but despite of that, some patients didn't do well. I mean, you know, my, and sometimes I see my patients do fine with low grade BPH and it's like, is it because of what I recommend? You know, I have to be honest with yourself. Is it my treatment or is it despite of it? You know what? And you want to look into it so that you do better. How did you manage to 
sort of go through that emotionally and know that, wow, every patient I see is in really bad shape and I'm giving it all. And sometimes, you know, I'm not succeeding here. How, how did you manage to deal with that, you know, emotionally and mentally? Yeah, it, um, well, I would say not well in the beginning because you're not really prepared for that. Yep. And, and, and there's a little bit of a, a selection bias in that in the earlier days, the only people who had come to see people like you and me had been written off by their oncologists. So, you know, at least back in those days, the oncologist would hold on to the patient and they would tell them they would fire them if they went and saw anybody else. And so our initial patients were literally, okay, we can't do any more for you. Maybe go, go try something else. Uh, so we had a lot of end of life people. We had a lot of, uh, uh, I, I started and continue to work with pediatric cancer patients and, and that started right away, you know, with very advanced, uh, pediatric cancer. So it was a real steep learning curve on both ends, both technically with, you know, what do you do as a doctor here? And, and then, um, you know, really, as, as you characterize it mentally and emotionally. Yeah. In retrospect, I, I don't know, I probably seven or eight years in, I described it to another doctor as um, it's, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's like a ship that you have to wreck and find out how it wrecks and then you can sail again, you know? Uh, so those early years, they were pretty rough because we had, you know, nothing was easy. <laughs> no, look, um, I, our office now is at a different place, but our office six years ago was right next to the pediatric oncology department. And I used to see these kids come in all the time. And I tell you just from that brief interaction in the elevator, it took me a minute to get myself together and see my own patients. That was rough. And I'll tell you something else. That's, and we'll you know go right into prostate cancer. The good news, I think, with prostate cancer and certainly the patients that I see and maybe that you see with prostate cancer, I would say, by and large, most do well. And I'm even talking about some of the advanced stages. I, I just had a patient five years. He's been five years with me, Gleason 9. 74 years old. He's currently on no treatment. So typically guys on Gleason 9s stay on androgen deprivation therapy, hormone therapy for a prolonged period of time. He hasn't been on it for three years, his PSA stable. And he was so kind. He said very kind things. He's like, look, I, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff. It's working. My quality of life is great. I still remember, of course, out of all these patients I see, the ones that stay in my mind are the three that succumb to prostate cancer. That I... And there's probably more of my patients that have not had come to prostate cancer. But there are three that I know for sure. And there are three that have been close to me and that came to me all the time. And these three guys stay in my mind. And I even spoke to one of the spouses recently. By the way, we're going to even interview her because I think I want I want our audience to know more about the spouse's perspective and those, and, and those that take care of their husbands uh, with prostate cancer. So... I could not have done it, uh, honestly. What you what you've done for such a long time, but now I think you're mostly teaching, right? You're teaching practitioners on uh, integrative uh, approaches. Not only look, I think one of the during the pandemic, Paul, you were one of the voices that I paid close attention to. I think you are one of the you kept on the research with COVID nineteen and um, and and really wrote amazing things on it. So currently, you're teaching most of the time with your online courses. 
Yeah, Mike, I, I do. I do currently still have patients, uh, but my practice is closed to new patients just for logistical reasons. And uh, and the patients I do have are all uh, not easy, <laughs> so it takes up a lot of bandwidth. Um, so the majority of my time uh, is trying to educate uh, mostly physicians and healthcare providers, but um, COVID you know, did a couple of things. One, one was, uh, there was a lot of space, uh, for information for the public there. So I was doing a lot of that early in the pandemic because of, uh, IV vitamin C. And because I had a history of researching IV vitamin C with the NIH, um, I was asked to do some physician trainings because of the early date out of Wuhan. Um, and then that led to, uh, a whole lot of uh, of interviews in the media over the last few years, and and a lot of other training that came about. So, yeah, I've I've certainly stayed busy. Uh, I also picked up an entire two part COVID practice during the during the pandemic. So, uh, acute care and then uh, consulting with hospital ICUs. So, so I've stayed busy. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do. You're not only a a wonderful practitioner to the patients you see, but you're a great voice for the rest of us, the practitioners and kind of giving us guidance and guidelines as to what to do with, with patients. So IV vitamin C, my first introduction 15 years ago, I went to Jeannie Driscoll to the University of Kansas and to do a one week internship with her and kind of learn about what's going on here because, and what drove that was that I had a patient from Kansas City with prostate cancer said, look, I'm going to UK to get treated you know, twice a week. It seems like it's helping. And I wanted to know more. So I spent a week with Jeannie Drisco and that group has done wonderful work, certainly a great scientific work, mostly with ovarian cancer. I didn't see too many things published with uh, prostate cancer. And But I did see some patients that went in with prostate cancer. It was very difficult to determine if what's working, what's not. It made scientific sense that it, it is a good idea to do IV vitamin C drip and uh, on IV vitamin C. But I think that at that time, we didn't know, and maybe we don't know, and that's going to be our discussion, You know how much, when, what type of prostate cancer patient, et cetera. So before we go in there, let's start very basic. What's the difference? So I take, I proudly take, uh, about two grams of vitamin C orally a day. It's a whole different ballgame when you take uh, oral vitamin C versus IV vitamin C. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a great place to start because most people, you know, understand we get some vitamin C in our food and we might take some in pills. Within reason, your digestive system has a limit to the amount of vitamin C it can transport into your blood. Now that limit shifts. If you're sick, uh, often it goes up. So you can actually take more and not get diarrhea or stomach upset, et cetera. But if you put uh, anything, but vitamin C, for example, into your vein, the higher uh, the dose you put in, the chemistry in your body and the way that your body's chemistry deals with the vitamin C starts to change. And so, you know, the the original theory was, well, if we get a high enough amount of vitamin C and we, we go around the digestive tract, go right into the vein, we can keep the concentration really high in the blood for a while. And then that will create 
um, what's called a peroxide surge at the cells or maybe in the cancer cell or outside. Uh, and that is known in research just, just on tumors, uh, to be fairly anti-tumor. Now that, um, and you mentioned, you know, uh, Dr. Drisco, uh, and a few other people and, and then our group uh, at sort of the same time as Dr. Drisco is doing some cancer research there too. What we found over time is, is that that is true, what I just said about the peroxide surge. But because vitamin C um, at higher doses distributes in your body very uniquely, really, um, it it has a number of other beneficial effects if you have cancer, or at least potentially beneficial. And so one of them is, uh, as opposed to, say, a chemotherapy agent where your normal cells and your cancer cells both get injured in the same way, if we have high dose vitamin C, the cancer cells may be bothered by the peroxide. Your normal cells will do one of two things. Either the catalase in your normal cells will reduce it and then you'll use it, or the normal cell will actually just be uh, supported by the vitamin C because we use it as an antioxidant. So it's really a lot more complex. And then, you know, we found out even more things, you know, it gets into a lot of other tumor biology that it probably shifts around. Um, the other thing, you know, that I think is worth mentioning is the most, at least in my experience, the most famous, if you will, nutrient IV is high dose vitamin C for cancer, because most everyone's heard of it at this point, um, is also in the last 20 years, been a lot of work done on using lower doses, more for quality of life purposes, maybe in advanced cancer. So there's a lot of, uh, I think of it as sort of a utility player, to use this porch metaphor, you know, it's a, it, it can be used in a number of different ways. And, and that's where the, uh, the clinical decision making becomes very important. So, yeah. Yeah. It can play first base. It could be a catcher. It could be a pitcher, right? I'm into baseball here as a New York Yankee fan. We're hoping that Aaron Judge hits his, you know, breaks the record, 61 home runs. So you spoke about the peroxidase effect. Um, and just to, for the listener, that's like similar to hydrogen peroxide, which is toxic to cancer cells. And that seems to do harm to tumor cells, which is what we want, but leave normal cells alone or actually be beneficial for normal cells. It sounds like the, <laughs> it sounds like, the, the magic cure almost, this is exactly what we want. Why isn't it offered everywhere else? And you could talk very briefly about the politics if you want and the fact that it's very inexpensive and all these things. But still, even though I still don't see too many, even here in New York, I have, uh, since we don't do it at our clinic, I do recommend it sometimes. And I don't have that many options of where to send people to for IV vitamin C. It's, and it sounds like it's a, precisely what, what one would want. What's the deal there? Yeah, so that is um, is sort of two pieces to the question. So one of them is um, there are so many things in all of oncology that look really good on paper and perform in a variety of ways in in humans because we're very complex. Uh, so I, I think just to, to very shortly, IV vitamin C is similar to that because what I would tell patients is it's, and we get as later, it's not about what kind of cancer you have or how advanced it's, 
what your body and your immune system does with this when it goes in, uh, which is why you get a variety of outcomes. But as far as access goes, um, until about two and a half years ago, uh, intravenous vitamin C was not FDA approved. It was an orphan drug and uh, it became approved, like I say, about two and a half, three years ago. Um, so that was a barrier to entry because you'd call a hospital and they say, well, we don't even have a drug we can get. Um, then the next thing was it has, uh, enjoyed a unusual relationship politically and in the press and, and, and really in, uh, in sort of traditional allopathic medicine, physician education. There's a lot of misconceptions about IV vitamin C. So, it's number one, almost, not, not always, but it's almost never done in the allopathic setting. I did a calculation, even, even with COVID and sepsis and everything else, it's about 1% of hospitals that, that will even use IV vitamin C. Um, so it tends to be outpatient. It tends to be not covered by insurance, which is another barrier to entry. And then there are, you know, facility and training costs that sometimes a physician might own a facility and, you know, it's just one more thing for them to do. And so you would think, you know, in a place like New York, uh, where there's certainly a lot of people and there's a lot of doctors, yeah. there would be a lot more of it. But it's um, it's politically been a very uphill battle. You know, if you're especially, uh, you know, standard trained allopathic physician, a lot of the people that I train now are in that category. And until recently, they haven't wanted to jeopardize their license status by doing an you know alternative therapy. Um, so I think that that's a big reason why. And, and I run into that when I consult with people in different parts of the country. You know, I'll try and find out if there's anyone near them who does it. And sometimes there is, and, and a lot of times it's, it's quite a ways away. So, there, you know, there's just a lot of little barriers to entry that add up, I think. It also is space, you know, at the, uh, the vitamin C clinics that I've seen, this is a decent amount of space with nice chairs. And, yeah. and, and you're talking about New York, that square footage, that cost for square footage is yeah. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So it does require a decent amount of space. Um, still in all, it sounds like, you know, is a, is a very decent treatment option. There's only so many things I have that a patient can do. So I recommended uh, infrequently, I would say, those patients with high intermediate grade prostate cancer to high grade, I may recommend it. And again, I, ha I have the, the, the crux of trying to find a place for them and a decent place. Oh, yeah, I heard somebody. Well, I can't go by that. Um, right. Or it's very expensive if it's in New York because, yeah. you know, it's ex everything is expensive in New York. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I've heard all sorts of dosages that are used, you know, 20 grams, 50 grams, 100 grams. I guess what is the, and, and I know it depends on scenarios and things, but what is the most um, most commonly used dosage for IV vitamin C? And does it change depending on the type of disease and cancer and stage uh, a patient may have? Yeah, so... We'll start with the easy, easiest answer. Uh, when you're doing high dose vitamin C that's intravenous, the normal uh, range, if you looked at it, say on a curve, you know, a bell curve or something, goes from 25 grams or 25,000 milligrams to 100 grams or 100,000 milligrams. 
So that puts 50, you know, into 75 in the middle. And I would say looking at blood levels of, of vitamin C after an infusion, you, you're supposed to get to a certain level. 50 to 75 grams is kind of the sweet spot for most people. Now, there's some unique things uh, that, again, we can talk about now or later with prostate cancer patients that sometimes will, will change that dosing. But that's the general idea of a high dose. So we, we tend to consider anything under 25 grams uh, a lower dose treatment, uh, which, which has different effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any patient, so there's three... Roughly, there's three types of prostate cancer patients. There is the low-risk disease with low staging. Uh, sometimes they can be an active surveillance. We put them in a proactive surveillance, which is a certain natural protocols and lifestyle protocols. That's the intermediate, and sometimes it's low intermediate and high intermediate, and that's the high risk. For low risk, let's say low risk to low intermediate. Again, this is a Gleason 6 diagnosis, Gleason 7, 3 plus 4, low volume. And let's say the patient is 58 years old with a PSA of, and I'm just pulling this number out of the air, the PSA is uh, 5.2. That was the PSA that where the uh, diagnosis was made after that prompted a biopsy. They do 50 gram treatment of IV vitamin C twice a week. They get, and they do it for three months. They get a PSA. Now their PSA is 7.2. What's going on there? Is there's is there does that mean there's prostate cancer progression or some other biological thing that's happening that's causing the PSA to go up possibly falsely? Yeah. So this is this is a real common finding. It's also a real common question that I get, and it t- it took me a long time to wrap my head around it because this is this is something you don't see in every prostate cancer patient, but it's more common in prostate cancer than other cancers. And just to be, you know, clear with my experience, our clinic, we never got anybody except the third category of more advanced, you know, prostate cancer. I mean, we have a few in the middle, uh, but I certainly, yeah, I've certainly consulted with a lot of clinics that do the middle. And so that, that PSA elevation is, is something that, that we now teach doctors to, you know, warn patients about. Um, so there, there is a phenomenon in, uh, in oncology that now, because of certain uh, biologic drugs, uh, we talk about out loud. We used to not talk about it out loud in standard oncology, uh, and it's called pseudoprogression. And, uh, but now that there's drugs that cause pseudoprogression, it's a big deal. Well, we've seen pseudoprogression in lots of different types of tumors with vitamin C, and the idea is instead of the tumor mass growing, uh, the immune response to the tumor creates a bigger looking tumor. Now, with PSA and with certain other tests, but PSA is sort of almost unique in this way. Sometimes the more uh, immune reaction you're having in the prostate tissue or the cancer tissue in the neighborhood, the more you'll bump up the PSA. And so the clinical issue then becomes what else are we doing to monitor you know is this just a pseudo progression of the PSA or is there actually some kind of you know change going on because people you know even on chemotherapy people have advancement of cancer so it does happen you know that you have to watch out for but the majority in that middle group uh, that you're talking about 
the PSA generally will go up and then eventually it will start to taper back down if they're one of those people where it goes up. And I've done uh, some looking into this as far as prostate-specific tumor biology, et cetera, and, and oxidants like vitamin C or ozone, et cetera. Um, and I think there's a couple of factors. One is that, uh, as I'm sure you've had many podcasts on the, the prostate um, and all of the, you know, adnexa around the prostate are great places for a lot of, uh, a lot of microbes to hang out. And often they don't bother us, but then, you know, you, if you wind up getting a chronic prostatitis or something, you certainly ha- have some aggravation from them. Vitamin C, uh, one of the things that it does in addition to bother cancer cells is that peroxide reaction will really create an immune response. And so if there were microbes there that were happy and not giving you any trouble, the microbes will become attacked. And then, of course, there's there's more of an immunologic war going on. Um, that inflammation can, can raise the PSA. Um, they're just the... It was a year ago, um, that event you and I both spoke at. I did a review of, uh, you know, microbial, uh, relationships to, to PSA rise. And, um, I think it was about 30 papers. And the, the, the hilarious thing was they keep looking for the one bug that's going to cause it. And every bug they look for, it, it causes it if it's there, you know? Right, so right. I think. That's one big reason in prostate cancer. The other thing I think that happens uh, if, let's say, there was no microbial activity, et cetera, is you got the prostate, you know, which has a capsule and it's very, you know, uh, separate from its environment to to some degree. So if you start getting a lot of immune activity in there, um, it, you've you've got the potential to be throwing off a lot of uh, things like PSA, et cetera, just as an inflammatory response. And that certainly is a piece of the puzzle too. So what we, what we tell prostate cancer patients now is, okay, if you're going to do oxidative therapies, we have this sort of wild card that we can't always test for, et cetera, but your PSA might go down. There's plenty of papers that show that with vitamin C, for example, but you might be one of those people where we sort of poke the dragon a little bit and you've got other things going on, or maybe the, you know, your prostate tumor biology and the vitamin C are really getting after it, your PSA may be up for a while. And so that might mean that we may need, you know, uh, uh, interval imaging, or we might need something else to you know, keep track of how things are going. But that's um, in that in that group number two, the middle group, that's the most common reasons that we see. So yeah, we, we see that with the, uh, what they call radiation bump. So they get radiation and then first PSA is actually higher and then it drops because of some sort of similar response, right? So similar, uh, whether it's immunologic or what have you, there's a, there's a, there's a response that causes this false elevation of, of PSA. Mm-hmm. You know, PSA, I, I just don't know a biomarker that uh, causes more anxiety in a man yeah. than PSA. Yeah. I mean, they could have a uh, cholesterol 400 and they're not going crazy. <laughs> like a PSA that goes up by a point. Yeah. It, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, the kind of response that men get from this biomarker. Yeah. Interesting. Very true. 
advanced stages. So advanced prostate cancer is defined more or less by, you know, anything higher than a Gleason 8 staging or anything that's outside of the capsule. Uh, it's considered advanced stage or if, it's bone, if there's already bone metastasis, uh, it's considered advanced stage. What, what have you found to be beneficial from an IV vitamin C perspective? Does the dosage change or the, the times that the patient will go to the clinic to get IV, IV vitamin C? So it's typically twice a week yeah. for a prolonged period of time. What, what's different there and what have you found uh, to be beneficial? Yeah, when, when you get to that third group, the advanced group, then you've got a couple of uh, uh, competing issues going on. One is you, you have spread of the cancer. So in, in a sense, you're treating more of like a stage four cancer of any other type. So you're, you're, you're dealing with a lot more issues. Um, the other thing in, in the advanced cancer group, which uh, almost to a man I have seen is, the comorbidities, the, the things that we carry with us that we may not notice when, when we're otherwise healthy, uh, once you get something like cancer going on and it starts to get a little more advanced and maybe you've had other treatments, et cetera, that were a little hard on your immune system, all of those things that we normally carry with us that could be a, an immune stress can, can uh, sort of manifest at that time. And so in the more advanced cases, so like that third group, we will usually counsel people this. It's very safe and it's it's a good idea normally to start with something like vitamin C that is such a good utility player. But we also need to start digging into um, what else can we mitigate and maybe either reduce in your body or uh, or calm down or, or something else. And the areas that I have seen in advanced prostate cancer be the most problematic are um, environmental toxicities. Uh, the infections we talked about only a little bit more of a, you know, above the line problem at that point. Yeah, chemical and, and heavy metal exposure largely. And, you know, we all have that, but there, there reaches a uh, sort of a, a tipping point where your body is uh, just unable to deal with what's there. And, and we certainly, I mean, we certainly know about associations with certain chemicals and prostate cancer. There's also associations with cadmium and arsenic and, you know, many other metals and things. And just to, because you brought up uh, the, the Kansas research group and Dr. Drisco, uh, I can't even remember how long ago, sometime a long time ago, she and I were teaching a course, and uh, we were we were comparing notes about IV vitamin C, and um, one of the things that she was seeing, and her research started a little bit before our research group started doing our research, was there was certain people who they could not they put all this vitamin C in their vein, and they couldn't get the blood levels to rise, and so what what they did is they didn't allow those people to stay in the study because they thought it would kind of you know. Throw, throw the study off. But we started looking into that a little bit more. And I started to notice that phenomenon more commonly in my uh, high-grade prostate cancer patients. And the high-grade prostate cancer patients, not every one of them, but a majority, if you dug back far enough, and sometimes it was not that far back, all had these 
moderate to high exposure jobs or uh, hobbies or whatever that expose them to a lot of environmental chemicals. And so when we chase that down a little more, the reason that the vitamin C level in your blood didn't arise is not that we didn't put enough in your vein. It's that your normal cells saw this vitamin C, which it uses to uh, as an antioxidant to help with detoxing chemicals and stuff. And they just sucked it up. So it never even, you know, it went one time through the blood. The normal cells suck it up like a sponge. And so it's helping the person, but it's doing nothing on the cancer side. Right. That's, that's fascinating. So if there is a high toxic load in the body, it, ve- it may very well be that the vitamin C will take up all that time and space, all, all the time to just you know, get yeah. rid of those to- environmental toxins yeah. and not make its way to the cancer cell. Yeah. And so then, but, and then, and then you'll find that the amount of vitamin C in the blood is still low despite the amount right. that you, yeah. so would you just keep going and, you know, at uh, some point they'll get rid of the environmental toxins and then get into the cancer cells? Well, it's, you know, that was sort of one of those things we learned along the way. We first thought actually, this is the reason I kind of thought about environmental toxins. The universal group were smokers where that would happen, which is, you know, sort of auto intoxication. And uh, then we started looking and we started testing, you know, these prostate cancer patients for uh, chemical and metal toxins and they all the universally they they had a lot. So what we would do rather than trying to, you know, go to higher and higher doses of vitamin C is we would start to treat them you know, kind of moderately, not extreme, not too gentle, but moderately just to support their uh, elimination pathways and to support their normal cells as much as we could. And what we found is when we did that, suddenly their blood levels would go up because their cells weren't so starved for, you know, the vitamin C, their liver wasn't so starved for it to help to detoxify. So there really was a relationship there, you know, which, you know, if they're a smoker, that's a different issue. But if, if they've, a lot of these guys, you know, had, uh, a lot of them were in the contracting business or painters or, uh, or uh, in, in our area, aerospace is huge and, and the aerospace industry is full of a lot of chemistry that nobody needs. Um, and, and so it, it's just a pattern that we saw. But the, the cool thing was, is that once we started to address the environmental toxins and, and be kind to the body's detox pathways, their vitamin C levels would magically go you know, become norm, normalized, um, which really then started helping their therapy more. So in those advanced people, what we learned slowly, uh, unfortunately, was you kind of have to come at both ends of the problem in order to make the vitamin C therapy really effective. Whereas, you know, your middle group where maybe this is less of a problem, it's it's probably a little simpler. Fascinating. So would someone with advanced prostate cancer uh, undergo IV vitamin C simultaneously as they undergo, let's say, radiation therapy, which the radiation oncologist would not be happy about that because for uh, theoretical reasons, uh, I've spoken at those conferences and I told them that those are uh, theoretical reasons and yeah. poor theories too. Yeah. But would they, or hormone therapy or any other therapy, would, would there be any negative interaction between IV vitamin C and any other medical treatment? 
And that's sort of the million dollar question when it comes to, you know, interacting with the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist. And uh, that's another thing that we have to have long conversation with the patient about because they get in the middle of it. Yeah. So here, you know, one of the one of the side benefits um, of our research project, which was five years, it was human research and was funded by NIH. And and my part of it, it was integrative oncology, so it was everything else. My part was all the IV things, anything interventional. Um, a side benefit of that is this is a conversation we started having on day one with our research partners at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and University of Washington, uh, Fred Hutchinson, Seattle Children's, all those places. So the oncologist would you know, send the message over and say, well, I've got this patient and they really want to come over and do you know, your integrative oncology stuff. But we're concerned because we, we understand IV vitamin C to... Uh, you know, to block the effect of our chemotherapy or radiation or whatever. Um, and so I, in answering their questions, I started collecting data. And the surprising thing even to me was for every chemotherapy studied pretty much, there's only positive, it's only synergistic. Uh, so it's actually helpful to do vitamin C alongside of those things. And even when you get to the radiation studies, as, as you said, uh, there's there's a couple that are theoretically at issue, but anything where they actually gave vitamin C and radiation concurrently to an animal or a human was positive. It was synergistic. Now, what I found was the medical oncologists, as far as you know, chemotherapy, et cetera, if I sent them a list of papers and I said, I'll just summarize this for you. There's six papers on your chemo and vitamin C, and they're all synergistic. The the chief of oncology at one of the locations said, "I never knew anyone even studied this stuff. We just we were just told not to do it." And and then he said, "Well, I got no problem sending patients to you know it was it was a really now not everyone's that easy, but but it was like that. Um, with with medical oncology, you can often you know do that sort of okay. Here's the data. I, I, there's no smoking gun." With radiation oncology, it is, and I've, I've been on those panels like you have where, you know, they get to the end of it and they say, yeah, okay, maybe it's theoretical, but we're just uncomfortable with this idea, yeah. you know. And and there's even some, you know, high quality animal data and some yeah. human data that shows only synergy. So what I would tell patients... Synergy meaning that it works better together, likely the radiation. And it seems like the tumor becomes more sensitive to the radiation from things like antioxidants and vitamin C than without it, actually. So it might work even better. And that's the presentation more or less that I gave to a group of radiation oncologists. They were uh, more... Uh, actually, they were, it was favorable. I just interviewed Dr. Jonathan Haas. He's a radiation oncologist. He says, oh, Gio, after you gave that talk, I don't mind my patient taking uh, you know, supplements during radiation yeah. anymore. I had uh, the head of Harvard um, Urology call me. That was another one. So we spoke about the John Hopkins guy that told me before we got on, on, on the podcast, which was great. Um, he called me because he says, you know, you have these patients, he's done, this patient is going to undergo surgery in a week, you have them under, you know, you're taking all these supplements. So I have a peri-surgical suppl supplement protocol that there are no fish oils and things, but they're things that are supportive for tissue healing and things like that. Of course, one of them is bromelain. 
Um, and, and there's another one that, and there's a multi in there with a little bit vitamin E, which I clearly cite that that amount will not interfere, et cetera. Well, I would think that he would ask me about multivitamin with vitamin E. No. What's this bromelain stuff? And, you know, and, and, and flax seeds, why are you recommending these things? And look, is the anesthesiologist also asking questions because there is more of it. So he, he was actually very kind in terms of being honest. He said, look, it's just that we don't know. It's more of an issue of not knowing. And if something happens during the procedure, what are we going to say it is? You know, he's like, well, it has to be the supplement. Um, lo and behold, the patient I spoke to yesterday is doing great and fancy. You know, he's doing amazing. And he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I may be amenable to, you know, you know, having them at, uh, on this protocol. Um, so there's a lot of uh, uh, unknowns is what their fear is typically. It seems like I've been work, I've been working with them. With the urologist, uh, very favorably, I have to say, they're they've been incredibly open and accepting to the protocols and and the approach, the naturopathic approach. And I think it's because how you and I present it, we present it in, from a scientific perspective. This is not, um, um, you know, just kind of what I think. And even sometimes, look, even sometimes, uh, uh, some of the information that we've learned from our ancestors uh, without the science. Now we know that the science is there, are good, but we present it with you know citations and things. Before we go, and we only have a few more minutes left, um, ozone therapy. Give us the brief on ozone therapy. What is it, and how is it beneficial or potentially beneficial to prostate cancer patients? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, probably next to high-dose vitamin C ozone therapy is another big utility player. So a real quick uh, down and dirty on the difference is I put vitamin C in your vein at a high concentration, high dose. It goes to your cells, and then at the cancer cells, it creates a peroxide surge and and there's other immune chemistry that gets stimulated. So it's it's a distant action. Uh, and then at the normal cells, the normal cells just use it for healthy purposes. Ozone uh, of whatever type uh, is administered goes into the blood and its reaction is the minute it encounters your blood because your blood is full of these enzymes. And uh, the enzymes then will take the O3, the ozone, and uh, turn it into oxygen. And then in that process, the immune chemistry, the cytokines that trigger a lot of immune response happen in your blood. So then they're delivered to the tumor and your cells, et cetera. So it's similar actions. They're both oxidative treatments. But one is working sort of as a prodrug. So vitamin C is a prodrug for peroxide formation, et cetera. Ozone is a direct trigger of that same process. So you kind of get two different approaches. And, and I was going to mention in our uh, more advanced prostate cancer patients, because of toxicity and because of potentials for infectious disease and other things, we would often alternate and do a high-dose vitamin C you know, on Tuesday and an ozone therapy on Thursday, for example. And a lot of times that was even more efficacious. They're very synergistic together, not necessarily the same day, but, it, you know, working in cycles. And there's a lot of ways to do ozone that are, you know, way beyond this discussion. But ozone is quite useful in that way. It's just that it's having its effect immediately. And then the chemistry of the effect is delivered to your tissues 
whereas vitamin C kind of goes in all friendly, gets to the tissue and then does, you know, does its work. So kind of working two ends of the same issue. And what is ozone? Like, what is it yeah, precisely? O- ozone is is simply uh, O3. So O2 mm-hmm. is the oxygen that we're breathing. Oxygen, right. And if you've ever been around an ozone generator, it has a weird smell. Uh, people hear about the ozone layer, you know, that's got holes in it that's supposed to protect us. Um, so it's a naturally occurring uh, chemical. You have to be careful with it because um, if you breathe in ozone, for example, you can damage your lungs. Well, that's not how it's given, you know. So so a lot of times the ozone is either uh, mixed with your blood in a special system that's closed, obviously, and sterile, and then put back in, or there's other ways to administer it. But basically, it's because it has that extra, so instead of O2, it's O3, mm-hmm. your body sees this molecule and says, we don't like that. We like O2. And in the process of removing one, uh, it, it triggers all of this immune chemistry. So it's uh, it can be done very safely, you know, by anyone trained to do it. Uh, but it's a very useful addition uh, in my experience. Fabulous. Paul, this has been great. Any final thoughts and how people can get in touch with you? Yeah. Well, first, thank you. This is, it's always My fun pleasure. talking to you, uh, whether we're on My camera goodness. or not, always fun talking to you. <laughs> I sent in, we can put in the show notes, uh, I have a hub website because I have so many things I do. It's just D-R-A-N-O-W, dranow.com and uh, info about the books and the podcasts. And uh, there's, there's links to the practitioner stuff I do as well. Um, one of the nice things, although I didn't sleep a lot for all those years, is during the research, uh, I was the person writing up most of the protocols and the white papers and and all this stuff about chemotherapy and vitamin C. So that's all free on the on on my practitioner website too, because um, no one should have to redo that work. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for doing so. And thanks for being on the pod because it's a pleasure. It does feel like we are just at a, you know, uh, at a conference on the side, you know, coffee shop, talking, talking yeah. shop. Yeah. So really a pleasure, Paul. And I, I hope to see you soon, brother. All right. Thank you. Be well. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in a world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.